Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And today our guest is Henry Ward, and he is going to talk about his nonprofit, Running Without the Devil. But first, he's going to share his own story of recovery about how alcoholism and drugs really just took his whole life. And he did get into treatment, finally was able to get some recovery under his belt, and for a few years, kind of wandering around, not being able to do anything until he stumbled into running. And so Henry's going to share about how running has impacted his life and his own story of recovery and how he got there and how he uses running now in his own recovery as a way to manage his addiction and bring passion and joy to his life. And he's going to talk about how he is bringing his passion for running to others through his nonprofit, Running Without the Devil. Quickly, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please write a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. It means a lot to me. It helps people find the podcast or just share the podcast with a friend. I really appreciate that. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, let's go ahead and get this episode going. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Today, my guest is Henry Ward, and we are going to talk about, I guess, addiction and all things running. That's what I understand, right, Henry? You want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yeah. you? And I know that's kind of a short introduction right there, but... That's okay. Hi, I'm Henry Ward. I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. I'm 51 years old. I currently reside in Chandler, Arizona with my wife, my son, my dog, my tortoise. My desert tortoise just lives in the backyard by the name of Rocket. I always like to include him. Uh, all right. Yeah, and I've been out here for five years. I grew up in Boston. I was out here before. I grew up in Boston and I've lived both places twice. I run quite a bit nowadays, but that wasn't always the case before I kind of just ran from the police, you know, no, no pun intended. But no, I didn't do any anything to do with running before. 
Right. So we're going to talk a little bit about your own recovery story, but we're also going to get into your charity, Running Without the Devil, and how you use that to help people and, and also your books that you wrote and stuff like that. But first, before we get into all of that, let's just kind of get into your story and how did this all start? So I grew up in Waltham, Massachusetts, in a middle-class family, and alcohol was prevalent in my family and in the community. And I vowed never to drink. I didn't like what it turned people into, you know, including my father, both grandfathers, neighbors. Every time I, my parents got together to play cards or there was a, a gathering, everybody kind of drank into into oblivion. Not everybody, but most people. And I certainly didn't like those people right, when they did right. those things. Yeah, those people weren't present and, you know, loud, obnoxious, just not themselves. And so I vowed never to drink. So I don't want to be like that. There's a chance that I right. could. I think deep down inside, I, I knew I had this addictive gene subconsciously. There was a good chance that I could be just like them. So I, it, it was a complete turnoff for me until it wasn't, until curiosity took over. I was like, the first time I drank, I was probably 15 or 16 at my friend's house. And we had like three glasses of wine. He's in an Italian family. And wine was, was, customary between meals especially right. on sunday when you eat when you eat all day so i had a couple glasses and i got that warm glow feeling and remember like just kind of break dancing or just flipping around on the ground and ah this is fun and so like a seed was planted maybe right so um the opportunity came up and i was curious about attempting to drink so we decided my friends and i that one weekend we would pool our money together and and buy as many wine coolers as we could. Right. And so we did. We got good old, good to old buy wine coolers. They, they do it. Yeah. The wild Seagram's wild berry. I think that's the flavor. That was the flavor of choice. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, I like fruity things. So <laughs> I didn't like beer. I didn't like the smell of beer. I didn't like the taste of beer. So that's, that's the route we went. And yeah, I drank myself into oblivion the first time I woke up my friend's porch in the rain, like a sleeping bag with cuts all over my back, all over my head, my hands. I had like slid down this railing and like gashed my back and my head. And it was just, you know, I had a splitting headache. I, what happened? I had not too much of a recollection. I remember having a good time for a while and laughing a lot right. and hanging out with my friends. You know, I felt like a rock star. I'm like, oh, I'm never doing this again. And then, you know, once I went home and kind of sort of explained where I was and what I did, I think I lied. I probably just said I didn't feel good, but my parents knew. I went home and slept it off a little bit more. Right. I kind of couldn't wait to do it again, you know, once the headache cleared. And the next time, it was the weekend after, the weekend after that, same thing. We pulled money together and someone bought for us. And I couldn't get enough in, in, in me, you know, until I passed out. It was just something that well, really, it, uh, like you said, that warm glow, it, it filled you with something. And it gave you something that you really liked and felt good. And let's keep going. Yeah, I could be myself. I could be myself. Ah, you know, I, yeah. I could be this, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, I was like an introvert, but I'm an ex extrovert. Right. I was shy. I was small, scrawny. I got picked on a lot. You know, bullies are awful. So I couldn't really, I didn't really feel comfortable being myself, saying what was on my mind, you know, whether it was the girls or. Now, my immediate friends, I guess yeah. I was pretty outgoing, yeah. but you know, you start meeting different people and I had a difficult time, you know, approaching somebody I didn't really know. So it really like gave you that freedom to just be yourself in a way, 
Like I didn't have any of that pressure. I didn't feel any of that uncomfortableness. No, I had beer muscles, beer goggles, probably what you want. But I could go up to talk to anybody. I mean, anybody about anything, whatever I felt like, which got me into trouble a little bit too, right? Right. But that in and of itself is intoxicating, so to speak, because now you can do all these things without all that fear or anxiety or trepidation. And you can, uh, you know, approach the people you want to approach, say the things you want to say, and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I had no fear, no fear. There were repercussions, but I had no fear and it really opened me up. So I don't want to say it wasn't all bad, but I'll get to it later on. It caught up to me, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, so my drinking progressed. I went from, you know, this weekend warrior to once I turned 21, I could buy whenever I wanted to. And I did. I started drinking almost every day. And then I realized I started having a problem. People would tell me, you have a problem. Nah, you know, I just enjoy it. It's just part of my lifestyle. Right, right. So I started running into issues. I had a, a DUI, so I stopped for a few days, right? Right. I had gone to, to some sort of outpatient program that was a complete joke that I didn't apply myself. I didn't even know I went. I had to think about, you know, while I was in outpatient, I remembered back that I went to an outpatient program before. That's how little I cared about it or, you know, spent right. time applying myself at so, yeah, just, you know, I was remorseful after the, the DUI. And once that smoke cleared, I started drinking again, feeling sorry for myself. And then I realized that I had a problem and I started going to the gym. So, you know, I'm going to eat healthy. I'm not going to put anything, no caffeine, no sugar, no alcohol in my body. And I quit smoking for like a half a day. And then I wouldn't drink. I think I probably made it three or four days. And then I started rewarding myself with a beer or two after every time I went to the gym. <laughs> I really enjoyed that feeling of going to the gym. But so, yeah, and then it, then it became like, all right, I have five or six beers. And then I go to the gym and I'm kind of dragging ass. I'm just not feeling good at the gym. It was kind of counterproductive. I still felt good while I was going. But, at, you know, on my mind, I couldn't wait to get out of there to go to stop at the store. So, yeah, you know, I started drinking more, you know, more often and more quantity wise and more people started noticing and I pushed a lot of people away. Like if there was no beer involved or no weed, I started smoking a lot of weed, too. Like if we were to go to Panera Bread, like, no, I'm not going. There's nothing there for me. I don't really want right. a turkey and cheese sandwich. I can get that at this place and they serve alcohol. So I don't really want to go. So your life started to incorporate all these things uh, around alcohol, started pushing other people away. People were expressing concern, obviously. They're saying, look, you got a problem, yeah. but you just didn't want yeah, to hear my priorities, it. My priorities started changing. Like, I'm not going out to lunch because I'm supposed to meet Joe and, and Chris and yeah, Dan. Yeah. We're going to get a bag of weed and then we're going to drink. We're going to Joe's backyard. We're going to drink. So I don't really want to go. I can't. My priorities were screwed up. So yeah, I started hanging around with people that like-minded people that like doing what I did. And that was cool for a while. Uh, another head-on collision, alcohol involved, weed in the back seat. That slowed me down a little bit, but then I picked up where I left off. Once I started feeling sorry for myself, I knew I needed to, to change. I just right, didn't know how. Right. So I tried. I needed to change careers. I needed to get out of my parents' house. So I decided I was going to go to culinary arts school. So I did that. And that was going to keep me sober or get me sober. So all these external changes kind of outside yourself. Yeah. You know, and I didn't really get to the root problem. The problem was I was an alcoholic and I like getting messed up. So, yeah. So that I figured I wouldn't have time. They told me like an orientation, you're not going to have time to do this or that. 
which is true, but I would cram it in there. I would, you know, come home from culinary arts school one in the morning and then drink. And I, I started accelerating with harder alcohol. So I had less time to drink. So I got to speed this up. Then I would get messed up quicker and then have to wake up 4, 4.30 in the morning, try to make it to the gym, if not go to work and work 10 hours. And wow. then, you know, still be messed up. And people knew and they'd tell me it was just awful. And then all I was thinking about all day is I don't feel good. I can't wait to get out of out of work and I'm going to see how much beer I can drink and weed I can smoke and then go to sleep and wake up and do it all over again. And then, you know, like I pretty much every other day, Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I had culinary art school. That's like 50 or 60. I was just going to say, that's like a lot of discipline. I mean, you're drinking all of this, you're going to the gym, you're going to culinary art school. I mean, you're like packing it all in. Yeah. So, and then any errands, you know, social life going out, I would drink alone. I, would, I wouldn't have time. It's one in the morning. Right. So yeah, just trying to pack everything in. It became stressful because I didn't have enough time and I always felt hungover. I always felt messed up because I was, it was either one or the other. Right. And so to feel better, I would drink. Right. Right. So right. It was just this vicious, vicious cycle or circle. It's surprising. Like I'm not very book smart. Surprising. I really applied myself and did well in culinary art school. I graduated and got a decent job as a food stylist. And I thought that was going to keep me sober. So we got to style food for, for photography, really cool job. And I, I did, I, I mean, I could have done a lot, a lot better. I screwed that up and I, you know, the pity party. And then I was trying to find myself. So I had the opportunity to go to Arizona for vacation. And I did, I took that opportunity and I partied my ass off. I ended up Finding a woman who's now my wife afterwards, I'll get to that in a little bit, but I decided to move to Arizona because I needed a geographical change yeah. and that was going to keep yeah. me, that was going to keep me sober, you know, looks like your, your son's her. in the background right there behind you. Oh yeah. That's, there's Sebastian. Sebastian, I'm doing a podcast right now. So. Um, can you TV? Yes, go. Take Winnie to him, close the door. <laughs> Sorry. I got, I got the kids. The loves of my life. I got kids. Yeah, I totally understand. <laughs> he's great you know and i'm truly truly blessed that's one of the, yep. the gifts i wouldn't you know, if I didn't get sober obviously that wouldn't happen so yeah so anyways culinary art school didn't help moving i decided to move cross country i had met my wife online she had written me you know i found this thing called yahoo personal so it was how to meet singles in your area and then when i went to arizona i'm like you know well, i'm going out there maybe i'll try and connect with somebody and i connected with somebody else but this particular woman alejandra my wife she had sent me like this long five paragraph, well thought out email, you know, it's hoping to be your tour guide. I hope you enjoyed your time here. If you come back, if you decide to move, you know, I'd love to meet you. So um, I connected with her. I stepped out of my comfort zone and, and we emailed back and forth. And it was weird. Like I didn't want to type. I was very, this is really new to the internet. I didn't want to type or say anything. Like I needed a clear head so I wouldn't drink until she, until I sent the message and then she would reply, you know, I'd wait, sit there by the computer. Like, I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink. And so, so I'm like, I, I want to drink and I'm waiting for like, why isn't this person replying? How does this email thing work? Isn't she supposed to reply <laughs> right away? And two or three hours later, she replies like, <laughs> so I would drink and then I'd go to sleep and then I wake up and then reply again. And just went on for a couple of days. And finally I stayed sober enough long enough to, to call her like four days later and we hit it off. This was uh, a guardian angel. I'm like, this is the one for me. She's going to keep me sober. She's going to get me sober. This is something 
I've been looking for and missing in my life. I had a hard time with relationships with women, with trust. And, you know, looking right, back, right. a lot of it was, was, was booze. It was me. It was my attitude, negativity. Nothing was my fault. Whatever. So I decided to move. We make arrangements. I moved out here to Arizona the first time in, in 2004. And the first night we had a couple glasses of wine at dinner. Then no big deal. The next night, I had like four or five beers, and she says, "Oh, you drinking? Well, you know, my vacation just right, kind of right. out here." And then the following night, the same thing, and she questioned it again. And the following night, like, "Do you, you know, do you have a problem something along those lines?" Like, "No, no, I'm just, I'm on vacation mode. You know, this is, I'm just getting settled in." I used all these little, little phrases and and reasons and excuses why I was drinking, and then finally she said, "You know, it seems like you drink every day and." Yesterday, you said you were bummed out because you couldn't find work. You know, it's been a week. You haven't been able to find work. The day before, you said you were drinking because it was raining. The day before, you were drinking because there was a game on. It was Sunday, football Sunday. The day before, you said there was a game on. You were watching basketball. Like, So she's starting to call you out on this. Like, hey, yeah, like, come on. Right. What are all these excuses you're delivering? Trust, yeah, trust me. This is just a phase. And I usually don't drink this much. And like. Meanwhile, I'm like, this is nothing. I don't want to screw up this relationship. I really like this woman. I only have four, six beers max. Like, that is nothing compared to what I used to do. I was really, like, kind of white knuckling. I wanted to drink more. And so, yeah, like, one time I just, I drank a lot. I was bummed out. Like, I missed home. I was there. I was in Arizona for, like, a month and a half. Couldn't find work. Nobody's replying to me. So I drank, like, tequila, rum, and beer. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I probably didn't eat much. I, I woke up like she would found me, passed out on the kitchen floor in the house they were staying at. And I had hit my head. I don't remember what happened at all. I just remembered like drinking. And she was she was scared. She was going to call 911 because that was really incoherent. And, you know, like, oh, I think I drank too much and this won't happen again. So I didn't drink for like a week. And then I started slowly introducing again. And then every time I had the opportunity to drink like I wanted to, I would. And I was always like, I had a beer or two beers and I did, but they were leaders. And I also had tequila or rum. Right. I would always have more than I told. I was it's like an internal war. It's like, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. And yet I'm doing it. And I don't want to do this. And yet I'm doing, it. I'm going to ruin this relationship. Yeah. Sorry. Right, I'll cut it back. She's bitching again. And you know, get off my back. So, yeah. So I had jobs. I was function like a functional alcoholic and drinking every day. And like, I always thought every day, like, how much time do I have? I drank most days. How much time do I have? How much money do I have? What can I get away with? So while I'm at work, I'm just constantly thinking about this. Go over my head. Well, you know, money's tight right now. So I can, if I go to the store and get $10 cash back, that's $10. I have $6 in my pocket. I need cigarettes. So how much can I buy? I could buy like, I could buy a six pack of like quality beer, like micro brew, and I can get like two fillers and I already have rum. So that's enough for me to get messed up today. I'm covered for today, you know, worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And every day was like that. You know, if I couldn't drink that particular day for one reason or another, or doing something after work or you're know, going to the movies, whatever it was, I started thinking, all right, well, Thursday, Thursday, how much can I drink? I'm going to see if I get out of work at one o'clock, get out like an hour, hour and a half early. So I, have an, I can make up for lost time. And that's what I would do. And then she always knew and she'd come home and it was, why are you drinking again? I pick her up, like I'd sleep, I'd brush my teeth, I, you know, 10 altoids, take a shower, and I still stunk. You know, I was, I was still messed up. I'd pick her up, I'd drive there, I took a lot of risks. 
Wow. And um, she'd always call me out. And so we always fought about it. Like, man, she's just all over my case. What gives? And so, yeah, I, had, I hit it not so well. And we ended up going to marriage counseling because of it. And I was given an ultimatum. So in 2008, uh, I started going to AA meetings and that helped a lot. But I was only lying to myself because I, you know, I had this pink cloud. I felt good, but I wasn't putting the work in at all. Right. I did no work. I, I didn't even know what the word gratitude or humility was. I was just kind of, let's just call it pencil whipping the whole program. Yeah. I was just basically going there to save the marriage and, and quiet the counselor who I thought didn't like me. I thought she just hated me. Right. Because she'd call me out of my shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I had an opportunity to go to China and uh, for the Beijing, the 2008 Beijing Olympics as a chef. Really cool opportunity. Go there, find some AA meetings. Don't screw it up. Huge on the resume, huge for the family. Okay. I didn't want to go in the beginning because I think I was kind of terrified that I was going to either drink myself in oblivious or screw up the marriage or whatever, get lost, get killed, get jailed right. out there. So there was a part of you that knew how out of control you were. Like you were scared oh, yeah. this, of yourself. At this point, yeah. At this point, like, you know, for years, I was almost like it was like I was possessed. I was going to the, so I go run the devil a little bit later, you know, the alcohol is the devil. I found myself going to the liquor store, like just automatically buying things without even realizing it. Wow. Just, just doing oh it. God, you know, unconsciously. Like I, I mean, like, I'm in the car. I'm in the car. I can't believe I just made that transaction without even like consciously doing it. Yeah. And now that, that, you know, that, oh my God, you know, I got that weird feeling in my stomach, just butterflies like that. So don't screw up China, go out there, learn a lot. You're going to meet 250 managers and chefs from around the world. Awesome opportunity. Go see the sites, go see the Olympic games. And have fun. This would be good for your resume. And it was. However, you know, as soon as I got on the plane, what did I do? I started drinking. I was drunk by the time I got to San Francisco to get my flight to Beijing. And then I really don't even remember the flight out there. And then I went missing in action for like three days. They were looking for me. They they knocked on my, my they put us up in a nice hotel. It's a miracle I found this guy, Thomas Tang, who brought me to the hotel. He, he brought me from the airport to the hotel. And I just went to the store across the street. And, and stocked up on beer. And for like three days, I was missing an action. They knock on my door going, you, you coming to work? We've been looking for you. You haven't been answering or anything like that. We've knocked on the door before. I'm like, yeah, I just jet lag. Three days of jet lag. I'm just not feeling good. But those 150 liters of beer and the sake empty bottle over there and the and the, all the crackers and chips and junk food that's just all over the place, that trash, that's not mine. Those That's my roommates. I don't know who they are. I haven't met them yet. So I coexisted with like two roommates that I didn't know, never really met, and just drank it. My just drank by myself. I don't know what was wrong with me, but I had the time to to drink. It was you know maybe two months that had passed. So I was trying to cram all that lost time into three days, and I really wow. screwed myself up and, and screwed up. You know, my wife tried to call me too, like just trying to get in touch. She says that my my phone's off because it doesn't work. She was contacting the number they gave her. So they find me. I, I agree to go to work. I was pretty shaky and shaken up and trying to clear the cobwebs. It took a few days to to really get rid of that jet lag and that hangover, that awful feeling. And then I didn't I didn't really drink, but everybody was drinking. It was a social thing. Everything was cheaper there. And there were people there in recovery that they were kind of doing like one last hurrah. So I decided I was going to do that, too. I wasn't going to drink that much. But an alcoholic and addict can't drink that like in moderation, nothing in moderation. They say uh, one's too many and a hundred's not enough. It's true. So. I tried to be a social drinker for a couple of days, but it was only a matter of time before when I had the time, up with I, you. when I had a day, 
Yeah, when I had a day off, or you know, we had a uh, we had dinners. They had dinners for us. They'd bring us in a meeting and a dinner. Yeah, I'd get hammered. Yeah, I had a conversation with her on the phone. She knew I was I was drunk, and she said, "You know, get sober like forever when you come home. I'm moving out." And so, yeah, I had some bad days over there. I had a really good time, but I had some some bad days too. I could have been a better employer, I, I employee. I could have learned a little bit more. I could have made better connections, but I guess I wasn't ready, hundred percent ready. I was maybe ninety percent. So I came home and everything was great. It was so amazing to see my wife. Yeah, I was gone for almost four months. To have some different food, to be on American soil. Life was really good. We went away for the weekend. I had this feeling like I haven't had in a long time, this pink cloud clarity. And I'm like, I'm not screwing this up again. And they had a dinner for us in Orlando. And I drank when I got on the plane. This was like a month later. And I got wrecked. I got absolutely wrecked. I arrived there and triple fisted. And my wife had a dinner in Orlando, too. And like she never traveled for work. And uh, she kept saying, like, you know, hey, call me. She's calling me on the phone. We should hook up. We should you know, be cool just to be 2,500 miles away and, and, and kind of hang out for a little bit in Orlando. That'd be cool. Maybe we can go see some sights or right. whatever. So, yeah. And I kept putting her off. And then finally she knew I was drinking. And she wouldn't answer the phone. I'm like, I was pissed at her. I was pissed. Like, she's not answering the phone. She's not replying to text. She said not to call her. Anything like that, we'll talk when we get home. So what did I do? I drank more and I made a complete ass of myself there. I went up on stage and like pulled my shirt off and showed him my Olympic tattoos on my back. I was sitting with like the, the president of Aramark, the president of my company, the director of higher education, the assistant director of HR and the whole company. They're all sitting at my table and I had no idea. And I go back to my table and I'm wondering like why these people aren't talking to me and they're just like looking at me like, What's wrong with this guy? How much did he have to drink? He could barely stand up. I can't believe we just witnessed what we just saw and heard. Wow. So I basically just went up there to accept my award. But to me, I was a funny guy. I could be myself. Yeah. And that's just an example of how I was. So, yeah, I mean, I did. I caused a lot of damage to my reputation. I pushed away relationships or, I, you know, some relationships never happened because of the way I was. Yeah. And then, yeah, so I came home. And she came home a couple of days later, but I had no reason to live. I felt that my marriage was over. I felt that I screwed up my work. No call, no show, three days to work. I had a side gig where I did cooking demonstrations. No call, no show. I just isolated and I fucked up on beer and booze and I just drank. And I didn't want to live. Like I wasn't suicidal, but I didn't want to live. Now you're now you're using alcohol just to drown out all the pain and misery. Well, everything everyone and i was barely eating i was falling down i was passing out i was sick i was just puking i was a mess and finally i was super low on on booze and knew that i needed to go to the store to feel better to get more and i had to like conjure up a plan like i got these cold sweats i don't know what i'm gonna do but i'm gonna have to walk down the street because i'm super shaky and get a 30 pack and probably get a bottle and get more cigarettes and I'm, and I'm kind of low on saltines and cheese. It's the things that I've been eating. Maybe I'll get something else to eat. So I grab my wallet and I put it there. My clothes are on the bed. I go take a shower and I walk out of the, I walk out of the shower. I remember being in the shower, trying to get rid of the cold sweats and the shakes and just crying like a baby. You know, I used to pray. My spirituality is God, please get me off. Don't let the judge punish me too bad. Let me pass this test. Please, God, please, you know, help me get out of this trouble. Help me talk to this person. I have to talk to my boss. I'm super nervous. I, I screwed up again to pray for all the wrong reasons. And then 
I remember just praying, like, send me, God, send me an angel. I was like, I don't want to be the way I am right anymore, the way I feel right now, the way I've felt for the last 22 years. Send me somebody. I need somebody to save me. I can't save myself. I just, I gave up. And I open up, I shut off the water, grab the towel, and then I go to walk out into my bedroom. And there is a realtor and a nice young couple that were there in awe. They saw me butt naked, buck naked, whatever you want to call it, whatever the phrase is. And I saw them in the same thing. I was I was in shock. I was in complete shock of them being there. They may or may not have called and said they wanted to see the house because the house was for sale. Or they just would have rang the doorbell. I didn't hear it. And they walked in. But there they were. And I was in such shock because that was a spiritual awakening. That was God sending. Those were the angels. I honestly believe that. They were there to sign. just I believe put, it all, put it all in your face, like you had to face it all. Huge, huge wake-up call. Like It was so humiliating. And uh, I, I, was, I probably lost 15 pounds, and I was pretty skinny as it is, and I didn't work out, so I had no muscle tone. So I, I probably lost all this weight and looked terrible. My face was bony. and So I walked away, just super embarrassed, backwards into the bathroom, and then they left. And so I carefully peek out the door to go get my clothes. I'm shaky. And I go over there and I'm, oh, my God. So I walked over. I went into the kitchen. I looked out. The car, the car was gone. There's no car in front. They're gone. Went in the kitchen, went in the fridge, opened up the six or seven beers that I had, poured them down the drain, poured the tequila down the drain. And that was it. I just sat there on the couch like, oh, my God, now what? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. So that was really powerful. And then I remember getting either on my laptop or on my phone and Googling like magic pills to get to keep you sober, just different right. ways. I didn't want to put the work in. I didn't want to go, how is it going to afford treatment? How much does that cost? And so, yeah, so I ended up like Googling different ways. And then I found there was a bunch of treatment centers and like, I'll go there tomorrow or the next day when I feel better. And my wife came home and she was like, you know, you, you, you know, we got to talk. I'm like, obviously. And uh, I love you. Don't save it. You know, you don't love me. If you love me, you would have save yourself, whatever she said, but right. you don't get sober. I'm, I've got an apartment. I told you I was getting an apartment. I'm moving out. And so like, I'll go tomorrow, I'll go the next day. I just don't feel well enough. And so, she's, okay, you know, it's up to you. And so we talked a little bit and then she left. Where are you going? Da, 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 da. So she left me there. I'm like, so I was mad. I was sad. And right. all sorts of different emotions. Yeah. I, the, the day, two days later and the day later, two days later, November 17th, 2008, I went into Tempe Valley Hope and inquired about some information. I asked the guy there, I'm here to get some information. He's like, help you? I said, yeah, I'm here to get some information. He said, I know you're an alcoholic. I said, well, probably. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing here? Is your life unmanageable? Said, yeah, it's unmanageable. So have you tried quitting down, cutting down? Yeah, I said, yeah, I know you. I'm like, you, you, don't, you don't know me. I'm like, well, maybe he did. I just don't remember. I'm brain dead. He said, you, he said, you came here for some information. He's like, what the F is information going to do for you? Like this big Harley dude, like, why are you getting in my face? Why are you so rough with me? What is information going to do for you? You want to get your life back on track. You want to change your life forever. You need to quit. You need to stop forever. So you, you can't just have one or two right now. I can't. Okay, you need to stop drinking forever. And this is the program for you. Now, you know, why won't you sign up? Well, I got to talk to my wife. Bullshit. You know, is your wife <laughs> mad at you? Yeah, she's she's really mad. She's going to get an apartment. Well, she may. I don't know your situation, but I know you. You're an alcoholic. And I know that she may or may not come back. But if you don't get sober, she won't come back. 
Am I right? Yeah, that's a fair assumption. And uh, how's your work situation? I don't know. I, I haven't even told them. Like, I've been missing there for three or four days now. I have to call them. And, and said, okay, so you, you may or may not have a job. But you, you, in order to take care of your, your job or your wife or any relationship, you have to take care of yourself. You have, that's number one. So you need to get better. You can't, your way, to, your way of cutting down, only drinking on the weekends, only drinking wine, special occasions didn't work, right? Yeah. So, okay. So I have a different way and this is the program for you. And I think you should sign up I'm like, well, you know, I don't know how much it costs. And is your life worth a million dollars? Even if it costs a million dollars, which it doesn't. Yeah. Then money should be an issue. Your life's worth a million dollars. You said, yeah. As a salesman, he's getting a huge commission. Off this. <laughs> I hate this. This is a turnoff. Like, and so then, uh, you know, we went back and forth and, you know, all they had was excuses. Like, I don't know about insurance. Uh, I don't know. The hours, I don't know anything. He said, again, you know, what lengths did you go to the drink or to use? Did you use drugs? I said, yeah. What lengths did you use to use, to use drugs? And he said, pretty much. I wouldn't sell my body or anything like that, but I'd go to pretty much any lengths. He said, what, what lengths did you go to get sober? Any? He said, yeah. I said, then why won't you sign up? Why are you arguing with me? I'm like, let's shut this guy up. And I feel like going behind there. It's like, seriously, like, I'm like, if I, I think I'll just sign up just to keep this guy quiet. I'll never see him again. I'll just run away. So I did. I, I signed up. I said, fine, you know what? I'll sign up. I don't have to show up tomorrow. So I did. I did the insurance information, all that. But like when I put the pen down, it was like I surrendered right there again. You know, the first time I surrendered, I was I gave up. I asked God to send me the angels and I poured out the booze and admitted I had a problem really and didn't want to do it anymore. And then I admitted again to this guy and then signed up. So that was the next step, committing to Right. To treatment plan to to a better way of life and yeah like a huge burden was was lifted off my shoulders and that was it was it you know i fully i'm like an all or nothing guy and i and i fully embraced the whole program and i was there i studied i got an education on myself and I ended up saving my life yeah i really enjoyed it it was difficult you know examining the reasons i drank and and, and talking about uh, you know, my relationship or just damage that I did to other people. I wasn't much of a public speaker, but yeah, you know, I, I, I just started doing it more and more and it became more and more natural and became part of my life. I started going to AA meetings and yeah. It started to change. Um, you started to do that internal work, not all that external work. And I think it's all the internal. Work. Yeah. And it's painful to go and do this work and, you know, we've been running from ourselves, so to speak, when you run from yourself through addiction, you know, you got to go face yourself. You got to face all this stuff and no one will, you know, it's painful to do that. There is no magic pill. It doesn't matter if it's diet or exercise or recovery from addiction. You have to put the work in. Yeah. You know, you want to succeed in, in, in a career. You can't just half-ass half it. Yeah. You half-ass recovery, you're going you're gonna to get half-ass results and you probably go back out there. So. And the work being, was, you know, digging in and looking at yourself. Constant maintenance every day. Constant maintenance, take an inventory, you know, what can I control? The serenity prayer. Is this in my control, out of my control? How I acted, how I treated others, you know, so not being self-centered like I was. So I had to completely change. Everything was about me and it was never my fault. I had to change that mentality and, and recognize, you know, was it my fault or, you know, examine myself. So how did running start to come into this equation? Because you started, okay, you go so, through all this and now... And now running somewhere comes in here. I want to go into that. Okay. Yeah. So let's just say that uh, I needed something. I needed a hobby. I was going insane. I was like, if I could climb the walls, if my feet had suction cups, 
I would have climbed the walls. I was driving myself nuts, my my wife nuts. I had no hobbies and all this energy. And then, you know, I had found my friend in Corning, New York, that was a runner. And so I did that 8K race and then came back home and found out that there was a race series in Waltham, Massachusetts. And um, I started doing those races, mostly 5K distance. And then I wanted to do a marathon. I had this idea growing up in Boston, Massachusetts, that someday I was going to do the marathon. But, you know, most of it was was a false hope. First of all, I didn't run. Second of all, I was a raging alcoholic and I smoked cigarettes and pot and I was very irresponsible. And how the hell would somebody like that ever run a marathon? Right, but right. D- yeah. Deep down inside, like, I want to do that someday. You know, I'm going to. Yeah, that wasn't realistic. But then once I got sober and then once I started running and running with some friends that had run the marathon the year before that got derouted because because of the marathon bombing, like, if they can do it, I can do it, honestly. And some of the other people that have done marathons and half marathons, like they're in less less shape than I am. They're heavier, they're slower. I can do this. I had run 12, 13, 14, 15 miles already. What's another 10 or 11 miles, right? You're just going longer. Well, I started increasing my distance each week. So I started like a, a training with, with Randy, my friend Randy and his brother Tommy that were gonna be running Boston as if I was going to run a marathon too. And I had wanted to run Boston, but I didn't realize that you had to qualify and run for charity. I tried to apply and I couldn't get in. I didn't get in that year. So anyways, I signed up for the Pittsburgh marathon and uh, that was May of 2014. So a little bit less, couple, couple weeks shy of uh, couch the marathon, so to speak in one year. I all I did was like live and breathe the training for that. I loved it. I followed a you know typical training plan, just kind of increased my long runs each week and trained with Randy and Tommy when I could through the winter, trained on the Boston course. It was super cool. So I started meeting all different people that were also running marathons and I was ready. By the time I went to run the marathon, I had run 27 miles twice by mistake. You know, you're really wow. not supposed to go over over 22 miles they don't recommend you know on a typical training plan you know three weeks before the marathon you do your long run and then you taper down meaning you know you decrease your 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 mileage you might go down to 15 to 12 to 10 and just kind of rest the haze in the barn so to speak right right yeah and i wanted to know what that felt like to get to that 23 24 25 26 27 mile mark i did that it was hard but i'm like i can do the marathon and then once i did it it was hard but I knew I could do it again, you know, just when let's, you know, rebuilds, regroup. And so I signed up for the wine glass marathon where my, in Corning, New York, where my running career started there at that 8K with my friend Enrique. And that was in October. And then I won a free race entry to any marathon that didn't have a qualifier or a raffle or lottery for it in the United States. And so I decided to come back to Arizona where I got sober, where I lived for five years so I ran the Arizona Rock and Roll Marathon in January, and I was hooked on marathon distance, man. Like, just I wanted to do all fifty states. I wanted to run them all, and yeah, you know, time and money. So running really filled this void for you. It gave you a purpose. It felt good. You felt accomplished. Here you were from this person who, no way I could ever do that, to now going, wow, I I can do this. I'm doing it. It took me 43 years to fill that void. There's still a little bit of emptiness there. You know, I always want more. There's, there's more. The hole gets, the hole needs to be filled up still, you know, stimulated with with races or, or stuff. Yeah, no, I found my hobby. I, I found that thing that helps me burn off anxiety, get me out of my own head, got my confidence back. 
And when I run, I feel like myself. And the longer you do it, um, the more you know, runner's high you get, the more I feel like myself. You know, sometimes it's hard, it's tough, but you know, you learn about yourself too. Right. And I was hooked on that marathon distance. So I did eight, I believe eight marathons in 2015. So, you know, really, I guess it was really like my second year running that things took off. And I realized I had this and I kind of knew I had this endurance gene. So see where, see, where, see where it takes me, see where we can go. And then I found out about the Ultra Marathon. Yeah, distance. I wanted to ask about that. I'm like, okay, the marathon. I mean, that seems huge. I've done a half marathon. And I'm like, that was long. That was hard. It is. Um, it is. We were talking but about man, you're talking like ultra marathoning. I mean, that's, yeah, I want to understand that and that drive to do that. For those of you that don't know what ultra marathoning is, I didn't know either. And I kept hearing that phrase. And uh, I asked one day, like, oh, well, it's anything more than your typical 26.2 miles of a marathon. So 27 miles, technically, yes, but it's it's usually 50, 50K and up. That's a typical race distance. And there's a bunch of those 50Ks. There's uh, 50 milers. There's... 100k 100 milers those are your typical distances then they have 24 hour, six hour race 12 hour 24 48 72 10 day races wow. where you run around like a loop uh, i'm doing a race called hotfoot hamster on september 3rd it's uh it's around a, a manor nardini manor in arizona and you're basically running 500 meter on a dirt track around a around a mansion wow and you do that as many times whoever gets the most laps the most miles wins you know in that time period yeah, there's all different distances and it's about, you know, going, you're going slower to go longer and you have to eat, you have to take care of your body, obviously, you know, you, if it's a longer distance, you might need to sleep. So you really get a lot of time on your feet, but you get a lot of time in your head. You really, really learn a lot about yourself and what the human body is capable of. And Tell me about that. Like, tell me how, like doing these kind of ultra endurance thing like this ultra marathoning where you're pushing your body to i don't know maybe it's I, i'm looking at it as an extreme but i guess if you're an ultra marathoner maybe it's not extreme but no it, it is I'll, I'll give it its due credit you know initially i was like who the hell would want to do that you know marathons long enough and then like this guy this addict right nothing in moderation what's next what else can i do more 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 tell me more give me more so yeah so i, I did a 50 it was a 54 miler and I was satisfied with that. That was enough. I'm never doing that again. And then as the smoke cleared and the body healed and the mind healed too, I started looking a little bit more like what's next. And, you know, it's really, it's really impressive what some other people do. I mean, including myself, I give myself credit too, but you know, you, you think you're just like in life, you think you're down and out and things aren't going to get any better. There's no way I can run again. I should just drop out. I should just stop. I should quit this job. I should quit this. I should do that. You know, those are all negative things. Like if you're willing to have faith and eating is part of it too, you need fuel when you're not in a good mood, you're not eating and stuff, you're down, down on calories, you can get pretty in a bad mood, but you start body sensing. Like the other day I just went on a run and like, oh my God, I'm tired. I have a headache. These are, these are real things. It's really hot. It's humid. I don't want to do this anymore. Negative, 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 negative. If you can, if you can just kind of snap that mentality, like, yeah, it's hot. Yeah, it's human. Nothing I can do about it. What can I control? Right? Nothing. Like the serenity prayer. Right. That's out of my control. I could just keep hydrating and do the best I can. So really being able to, you know, face some of this internal dialogue that kept you stuck 
when you're running and you're pushing yourself through this, it sounds like you're learning that, you know, I, I can overcome these things. I can push through this thinking or stinking thinking, if you want to call it, you know. Yeah, stinking thinking. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's awful. It's really like, so I look at it, I wrote in my, my first book, like the good Fred Flintstone and the bad Fred Flintstone on one shoulder, one's on the other. And one's like, hey, dum-dum, you're tired, you're beat up, you're hot, your feet are blistered, you should quit. You're hungry, go home, take a shower, go see your family, you loser, you know. And the other one's like, oh, just have faith and keep putting one foot right in front of the other and eventually get to the aid station. You can regroup there, fix your feet, get something to eat, and you'll be on your way to be running again. Just keep going. You've done that before. So the important thing is to quiet the negative voices, quiet that devil, and just take, like, literally, like, one step. Take Just take it like a small little fragment. And break it down. Don't break it down in 100 miles. Like, how am I going to feel in mile 80, you know, or loop, whatever it is? I don't know. But right now, I feel pretty good. Let's stay in the moment. So it, it teaches you to stay in the moment. If you do that, usually you have, you have better results, right? Right. And and, and and what I'm also hearing and I'm, I'm making up as you're talking and I'm thinking about is that it also tells you you can deal with this discomfort. It's not that bad. You'll get through it. It will change. Pushing yourself says you know what? It's okay. I can survive this. I can get through this. I have more power, more strength, more possibility than I I knew, especially like I'm I'm seeing you now and then thinking about the old you in the addiction, couldn't see any possibility, just, couldn't handle any pain, couldn't push it couldn't push yourself through anything. And here you are. I handled the I handled the pain. I drank. Well, you know, without drinking, without destroying your I own life, if that makes sense. But like handling it in a way that you're you're facing it. I mean, you're you're facing it in a way that moves you forward. It's uncomfortable, you know. You're, if you're running for 100 miles, or I just did a 250 mile, or all, you know, all trails, you know, my feet hurt, my legs hurt, everything really hurt. But it's I wasn't injured. I just I just pain like that's going to happen when you're on your feet that long. It's just pain, and you got to be able to, to to push through that. You got to quit because your your legs are sore. That doesn't make any sense to me. And I can always like I I believe I have you know a gift like of this sobriety, right? Uh, running's a gift. Um, I can draw back. I can use my superpower. I can draw back to all those hard times and think about how difficult it was for twenty two years. The the nights and the days of just you know the stress that I had from from my drinking and using all the shame and guilt. I can draw back to that, like little pain in the feet and pain in the quads or pain in the hamstrings or pain in the glutes is nothing compared to what I went to back then. So I got through that. I can get through anything. Wow. You know, so I can draw on that. I can use that to my advantage. And I imagine this doesn't just translate into running. Like this comes home to other areas of your life, like, you know, in dealing with stuff that shows up in life, all the problems that life brings you, you bring this attitude to everything. That's what I, I, I make up that you're saying as well. Most of the time I do well if I'm practicing what I'm supposed to, like in AA and staying in the moment, you know, no stinking thinking. If I'm thinking too far in the past, beating myself up, oh, I should have went to school. I should, I should, I should. And thinking too far in the future, the future is bleak. If I'm like that, I'm not in a good place. But if I can be grateful, stay in the moment, you know, and do what I'm supposed to, uh, I'm okay. Yeah. Just, um, you know, we hit these rough patches. My dog just went to the vet. I need $2,700 worth of, not to air all my dirty laundry or problems in the air, but I need $2,700 repair on the car. We're going to need a new car. Um, between jobs, it's kind of the off season. I want to transition from the food service into into something with fitness and running. And, uh, you know, where are we going to get the money? There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of moving parts, but 
I know that it's been proven that everything always works out. We have to put the work in, right? Everything always works out for the better, better than imagine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. You get what you put into it. Yeah. If I keep hustling, keep trying and keep asking people and keep networking and keep looking, something good's going to come of it. You know, I know that for a fact. So it's, it's also proven not to worry or stress about it. Again, you have to put the time in, but you know, it's not worth worrying about. So I have a question. And I would imagine people are thinking about this, especially when we're talking about ultra running and these super long distances. How are you careful not to make this obsessive and actually injure yourself? And and that part of it, like, you know, a lot of times when we struggle with addiction, we can be pretty compulsive in our in our behaviors and our thought patterns and kind of push ourselves too far. How do you take care of yourself in this? I think it's important to, well, first of all, cross train. Like I do strength training pretty much every morning at the gym. I have friends that run, run, run. They want to run seven days a week, 150 miles, but they're always banged up and injured. I don't run that many miles. I I mean, I have, but I typically cross train when I don't cross train and I get injured. And just like anything, you need to recover too. So I'll have, if I do have, you know, I'll do back to back to back long runs during peak training for a race meaning Friday, I might do 18 miles, 20 on Saturday, 26 on Sunday, something like that. Well, Monday, if I do run, it's going to be very light. Tuesday, if I do run, it's going to run, it's going to be very light. I have to have recovery built in there too. I stretch, I use the jacuzzi and mentally too. Mentally, your brain kind of goes through and needs a little processing. I make sure I take a little time off. After a big event, I believe in active recovery too. So I'll do some hiking, some walking, take the dog out, that type of thing. So you really have to tune in to yourself. You have to really tune into your body because if you don't, you're going to injure yourself, I would imagine. I listen to my body, not my brain. Yes. Yeah. No, you know, sometimes you, your body has a weird way of telling you to stop too. Right. <laughs> so I listen to those signs and it doesn't make any sense. If I, if something's, if I have a little issue that's coming up, I'll take care of it. Like I'll go to a place down the street called Arizona Biomechanics and have them work out, do some deep tissue work or mobility work if I can't do it myself. And yeah, and instead of like trying to run through, a lot of people, I can run through that. You can, but that that, that little potential injury might never go away. You know, and then you carry that into a race and you have lousy results. So yeah, I try to listen to my body. And I also listen to my wife if she's saying like, hey, you know, <laughs> your running's taking up too much of our time too, meaning the family. Then, uh, then I cut back. She's the voice of reason. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, that's good recovery, right? You're listening to yourself. You're listening to your body. You're listening to the people around you that care about you, which leads you to, you know, notice these things that you need to pay attention to and do the right thing and, and help yourself. I mean, that sounds like, in a way, just good recovery in general. You know, it's like I'm paying attention. I'm not just escaping and avoiding in a bottle, in a drug, in a behavior, I'm actually present. Like, I don't let my ego get in the way. Like, oh, I can, I can, I can do this. You know, it's, it's 115 degrees. I'm out of water. I'll be able to get 15 miles, 10 miles, whatever, get out of the desert. Like, no, get out of the desert as soon as possible. Go get some water, you know, before you die. You know, I don't care if it's a one mile walk, three mile run or a hundred mile run. I have a family at home and my health's important to me. Yeah. Just listening, listening to my body. Sunday, I wasn't feeling well. And so I went to go to a group run. I got there a little bit early and I had a headache and I started at least trying to, to move around to warm up, but I felt lousy. It was hot, humid, 
five o'clock in the morning. So after two miles, I got back to my car and part of me like was like, all right, nobody's here. I'm going to take off. It's five minutes to six. This was be here at six. And so I six o'clock, where is everybody? Nobody replies to my message. So I started driving away. And then I saw one of the guys and I turned around and went back and I told him I wasn't feeling good. And I started running and so I'll give it a go. I'm going to listen to my body. So I ended up listening to my body for like two miles and I eventually started feeling better. But I thought about, let me get to a certain point. If I don't feel well, I'll go back because I don't want to collapse right. out here. Right. I can't let my ego get in the way. It's just to run. Yeah, yeah, totally. So let's talk about your nonprofit. You've taken this passion of running and put it into your nonprofit, Running Without the Devil. Let's talk about that sure. and that passion and and how you're taking this running to help others. Yeah. So when I found success in running, I realized that it would be a great platform for me to share with the world far and wide, uh, my story of recovery of strength and hope and show people that we can recover and, and thrive. There's life after addiction. So I ran for another charity that did similar things. And I decided to start my own called Running Without the Devil. Um, I started it back in COVID. COVID gave me the time to do right, some things right. that I really wanted to do. So I, I wrote the book, Running Without the Devil, during that period of time too. So, you know, initially it was to give people uh, funds for uh, that they couldn't afford treatment because treatment's expensive and it might be a reason that people don't go to treatment. That was one reason. That was an excuse why I didn't want to go, as I mentioned before. Now, yeah, so most recently, I decided that I was going to work with children, uh, specifically at my son's school, as kind of use running as kind of a preventive maintenance program without them even knowing it, and teach them running. I started it last year, and I want to take it to a different level. We would, uh, every Tuesday and Thursday from October to the end of February for like March 1st, we would uh, run laps around the playground. So it was... I don't know, like two tenths of a mile around around the uh, the fields. Put four cones out, and in the beginning of the year, a lot of the students, you know, were running really fast. They'd sprint out, and then they'd be gassed. So I taught them how to how to pace themselves, and uh, you know, I do fun things. Like I I found that if I didn't run with them, they wouldn't run at all. They just walk or stop. And like, what is this walking club? Is this <laughs> you're in the wrong club? Club are you in? You're in standing club. So I joke around. Let's go. Let's run. We'll run to the next cone and get to that cone. Run to the next one. Then we'll walk and then we'll run again. And some of them couldn't run from one cone to the other. And then finally they could do two cones, three cones, four cones, and then. They kept showing up and they did better and better. I had two kindergartens that did over 50K, so 31, 32 miles. Wow. They finished second and third in the whole school. Oh, um, wow. After, I don't have a sheet here, but after they finished five marks, so, you know, two, two tenths, da, 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 da. It, anyways, um, they would get a mile and they would get a little rubber foot toe token. So imagine just like, you know, something the size of your thumbnail that they could put on a shoelace and put around just different color. And they were super motivated, like two more laps and I get a toe token. So I decided to have one of the big running companies out here as their own art department here. They really excelled during COVID. They kept people employed, which was cool, but they make their own shirts. They make their own awards, finisher awards. So I had finisher awards and I told the kids that the top three in each grade were going to get finisher awards. And then overall, we're going to get larger awards. So they became even more motivated and they showed up every Tuesday and Thursday and pushed themselves. And there was a little bit of competition between the kindergarten and the fourth grader. 
Ramon ended up getting 36 miles in fourth grader that wow. uh, he, he plays first overall, but those two kindergartners are right, you know, right behind him. If Ramon didn't show up a few weeks, he wasn't at school that, you know, they were going to catch him. They were determined to catch him. So it was, it was cool to watch the kids really push themselves. So this year we're going to have more prize incentive things. So once they get to five miles, they're going to get a sticker. Once they get to 10 miles, they get a water bottle a shirt, a hat, just different things like that. And then eventually get to like race entries. I might do like at the end of the first month, we have a race entry in a 5k race entry into the Arizona rock and roll 5k or 10k different things like that. And then overall at the end of the school, at the end of the running club in March 1st, or whenever we decide to do it, we'll have a little ceremony and uh, pass the awards out. And I want to give the overall, the top three people in, in each grade, maybe in each grade. I don't know. I have to work with, with a running store and a sneaker company, but give them shoes too, like a hundred dollar pair of shoes. Wow. That's awesome. I mean, really showing these kids that they can do it, that they can go farther, that they can really make this happen. And I'll joke with them too. I'll joke with them too. I'll say like, hey, coming through, kindergarten is coming through. And then, you know, the older kids turn around like, what the hell? I'm not going to let the kindergartners pass me, but. Again, I need to coach them and motivate them and tell them, you know, you can, I, I believe in you. You can do it. Look, you last year, last, last week, you couldn't even make it two cones. You just made it three. You just made a whole lap without stopping. Wow. That's amazing. That's another, you know, that's another mark. We're passing the last cone. You're going to get a tote token and, you know, congratulate them, you know, on the fly. Like all that hard work paid off and just all these little cliches. It's amazing. You know, we're almost done. Let's get one more lap, one more lap. You know, as, as I'm watching you, you're talking and I see your face just lighting up about this and, and your excitement about it. I'm just picturing the old you, you know, kind of lost in your addiction, right? And the you, you are now almost like wanting to encourage that old you, like, you know, give it that, give it back to them. You know what it's like to to be on the other side, to not be able to you know, get the motivation to to feel worthless, to feel a, a complete failure and like taking like all kids, of that. The, the, yeah, to see the kids' confidence, like, you know, some 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 heavier kids, you know, it looks like they lost a little bit of weight and they're the ones that could make, now they made two cones, three cones, huffing and puffing, they're not huffing as puffing as much. So they're having fun. They're not even realizing really. And, and that could carry over. They might start taking up a sport. They might start running, you know, at home or yeah. encourage their parents to start running. And yeah, I don't know. You know, I believe we'll never know the impacts. Whenever I share my story or share something, I'll never know the impact. But I believe if I don't share my gift and my passion that God gave me, it's a waste. It's a wasted gift. So yeah. So I want to help the kids and hopefully, you know, keep them off the streets, keep them out of trouble, teach them positive things. And, you know, I'd like to, I know, again, I never know the impact, but I'd like to send a survey to the teachers and hopefully I get maybe four or five out of 20 that reply. But, you know, is there a direct impact on your students in your classroom? Are you seeing, not all the kids do it, but every Tuesday and Thursday, do you notice that the kids are, are more engaged? Are they more attentive? Are they happier? Are they less fidgety? You know, I wonder if it, you know, their schoolwork is better on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Wow. Or does it carry over to Friday? Does it carry over to Wednesday? You know? What a passion. Um, yeah. What, what a passion. Yeah. So, I, so I'm going to raise, I'm raising money. So some of the events that I've done, like I've done um, a couple of the Boston Marathon quads, like the four consecutive marathons, the Mesa marathons. I've done a couple 66.6 uh, hour treadmill events. Those are all fundraisers and the money will go towards that. That is, that is awesome. So before we wrap up, 
I always like to ask every guest one question before we leave. Sure. If someone out there is struggling, or maybe you know a young younger kid is listening to this podcast, or a younger adult, and maybe they're struggling, maybe they think they can't do it. What would you want to tell them? If you could tell them one thing, what would you want them to know? Speak up. Like today's the day to ask for help. Like tomorrow may never come. You know, especially if you're older, you're too farther down the path. And I didn't want to tell anybody, you know, there's a lot of shame telling, you know, admitting you have a problem, right? I didn't want to tell anybody, my family, everybody knew, yeah, but I didn't want to talk about it. You know, I didn't want to say, I need help. Tell anybody, tell a complete stranger. Like I told complete strangers before I told my sisters, I just didn't feel comfortable. I just felt that, you know, it was private. I don't know these strangers. They don't know me, know me but I felt like I had a problem, you know, so I, I had to get it off my chest. Tell anybody or pick up, pick up the phone and, and, you know, just go to the internet. There's 1-800 numbers you can call different foundations and, and helplines and stuff. So yeah, just get into tre treatment, save my life. Awesome. You know, once I completely surrendered treatment, saved my life. My wife by default encouraged me to go there. <laughs> she helped, she helped yeah. save my life too. So, okay. So if anybody wants to support you, these efforts that you're doing, how can they find you? How can they support you? How can they help you fundraise if they want to contribute to that? Where can they go? Yeah. So general donations are always welcome. So they can go to my website at www.runningwithoutthedevil running without the devil.com. I am Chef Henry Ward on Facebook. I don't know my whole link, but Chef Henry Ward, that's my personal profile. Then I have a running without the devil page and a Henry Ward three, and that's the same on Instagram. And my email is Henry at running without the devil.com. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. I don't have all the answers. I can tell you what works for me and I can, where I can point you in the right direction. I have two books for sale. Third one will be for sale soon once we uh, once we finish it up and upload it. But those are available on my website too. I'll send up I can send up personalized copies, Running Without the Devil, and then a children's book called One Too Many Donuts, and they're also available on Amazon.com. Wherever you get your books, right? Yes, yes. Awesome. And Barnes and Noble. And Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I, I will put all those links in the show notes so people can find them at theaddictedmind.com and they can go there. So that's an easy way to get them too. So you don't have to memorize them. Henry, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you so much for your time. Glad uh, I'm grateful to be able to share with your audience too. Let me know if you ever need anything from me. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com, where you can find links to Henry Ward's nonprofit, Running Without the Devil. So go check that out, especially if you want to support him and his efforts to bring running to kids and help all of these young ones know that they can accomplish amazing things. Awesome thing to support. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend and join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. 
We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.